Showtime Sports presents Showtime Boxing with Eric Raskin and Kieran Mulvaney. Hello and welcome to another edition of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney with my co-host Eric Raskin. I am Kieran Mulvaney. And Eric, I know that you, like me, are not a fan of the fact that our chosen sport generally takes place late at night. Hmm. But I also happen to know that you willingly subjected yourself to a very late night on Saturday. So I have to ask, was it worth it? And was the whole experience, as they say in Liverpool, boss-like? <laughs> ah, boss, yes. Uh, that's a nice uh, hint for anyone who uh, isn't aware that uh, what Kieran is uh, alluding to is uh, me going to see Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band with my family in State College, Pennsylvania, about a three-hour drive from where I live, thus making it a very late night indeed. Yeah. Uh, this was all... On paper, in theory, I, I must confess now, Kieran, I didn't actually go to the Bruce concert. That, that was just a story I made up to make myself unavailable all day and night Saturday. So you'd have to do more than your share of the work on this week's pod. And and, and you bought it, you sucker. Uh, all right. So what were you really doing? <laughs> no, I, I, I went. All right. I'll, no. uh, I, I can only keep this lie, this very believable <laughs> lie going so long. Uh, we went and saw Bruce and it was amazing. Uh, just an incredible show carefully thought out set list where pretty much every song fits and feels essential and bruce is just a marvel at 73 as is the whole band 73 73 and 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 all the original guys who are still alive uh, which is not the whole original band but all the ones who are still alive and on tour are in their 70s too and I was expecting to see some of them looking a little shot, a little washed, uh, but no, the entire band is made up of Bernard Hopkinses. Uh, seeing this show, <laughs> seeing the show with my kids was it was a bucket list thing. It had to happen, especially for my daughter, who is the lone Bruce agnostic in the family. Uh, I, I thought it was important that she see the greatest live act in rock and roll history at least once. And um, you know, like I said, they're in their seventies when this tour was announced. A lot of people thought. Mm-hmm. You never know. This could be the last time. Uh, so my message to anyone out there who sort of likes Springsteen's music, you know, you don't have to be a super fan. As long as you're not anti uh, and you've never seen him live, he's still got it. This is a mind-blowing concert experience. There's nobody else like him. If you can possibly afford it, you will not be disappointed. See him now before it's too late. Uh, and, and and he does one bit at the end of the show. He, he's done a version of this for years. But at the end of the second to last song, 10th uh, Avenue Freeze Out, the song in which he introduces all the members of the band, he does a bit where he tells everyone when they get home tonight to ring all the doorbells in the neighborhood and tell everyone you've just seen the heart-stopping, pants-dropping, <laughs> love-making, earth-shaking, Viagra-taking, legendary E Street Band. And it has inspired me to speak directly to our podcast listeners, if I may, Kieran. When you finish listening to this podcast, I want you to get online, on Twitter, on Instagram, on TikTok, on Facebook. I want you to tag all your friends and your followers, and I want you to tell them that you just listened to the hard-stopping, dad-joke-dropping, pants-wearing, sometimes, arthritis-flaring, fight-game-guessing, occasionally-interesting, legendary Raskin and Mulvaney. Good. I'm glad you dropped the Viagra reference. <laughs> yes, well, I, I don't I don't have any knowledge of your habits in that regard, so I, I didn't want to assume anything. Likewise. Likewise, I'm sure. <laughs> right. I'm not going to reveal in either direction on that. You, he didn't, like, 
drag you up. You didn't get to be like Courtney Cox in the video and <laughs> dancing up there with him. Sad, sadly, no. If you uh, go on, if you're a Facebook friend of mine and you see any of the videos I posted and where our seats are, you'll you'll know there was there was no way I was getting to the stage, not without not without a zip line. <laughs> but still, it's, it's amazing by the sounds of it. Just yeah. just really well worth the whole the whole. Uh, absolutely, board. it was not it was not easy staying awake for the drive home. We got home at about uh, two forty five in the morning, uh, but uh, but we did we did make it and um, live to tell about it and podcast the next day. Nice. That normally gives that would give you what about two hours before you your normal wake up time. <laughs> I went. I fell asleep just after three, and I woke up at seven. Uh, but oh, after, after like fooling around on my phone for a half hour, hoping that I would feel sleepy again, I did and got like another hour and a half of sleep. So I'm good. I'm wow. good to go. I'm running on, on a half decent night's sleep when all said and done and a whole lot of adrenaline. There you go. All right. Well, let's see if we can get through the show. I think we probably can. I think so. Um, coming up this week, we take a spin through the world of boxing news, including Canelo's homecoming and this past weekend's fights. Uh, Eric will hit me with another edition of the fight game. And I will count down my list of the top five fighters of all time from New England. But first, we spin it ahead to this coming weekend and a super middleweight clash atop a Showtime pay-per-view from Las Vegas. Yeah, it's been a strong year of boxing already and a particularly strong year of Showtime boxing. And that is set to continue on Saturday as David Benavidez and Caleb Plant meet in a genuine grudge match to decide who is the best super middleweight in the world not named Canelo Alvarez. Benavidez is unbeaten at 26-0 with 23 KOs, while Plant has just one defeat as a professional to the aforementioned Canelo and is 22-1 with 13 KOs. Plant is typically not known for his knockout power, but he's coming off a knockout-of-the-year caliber stoppage of Anthony Durrell in October. We most recently saw Benavidez destroying David Lemieux inside three rounds last May, so both men are coming into this fight in good form. But the two fighters have contrasting styles and will be looking to impose very different strategies. Kieran, why don't you start breaking down the slight betting underdog in this fight? Give me your thoughts on Plant. What do the people need to know about him? And I'm not trying to put Al Bernstein out of a job, but uh, what are Caleb Plant's keys <laughs> to victory on Saturday night? So I find Caleb Plant an interesting cat. I mean, he's famously super intense at times, although... His trainer, Breadman Edwards, insisted to us a few weeks ago that he does have a jokey side, mm -hmm. even that's even if that's well hidden. Um, look, it's not surprising, honestly, that he should carry such intensity, given that life has thrown a huge amount of shit at him. Yeah. Um, his mother was involved in an officer involved shooting and was shot dead in the ambulance uh, when she brandished a knife. Um, in 2015, his young daughter, Aaliyah, died at just 21 months old from a rare disease called atic deficiency that caused her to have between 75 and 150 seizures a day, the poor little thing. Um, uh, and he brings that intensity to his, his matchups, too. Uh, he and Canelo famously swung at each other at the launch press conference for their fight. He somewhat glassily made a digging motion of, over Durrell as Durrell lay motionless on the canvas. And, and the bad blood between he and Benavides is almost as intense as the bad blood between him and you. His uh, boxing <laughs> his boxing style, though, is, is, is antithetical to that approach, right? Because he's you'd think with that kind of intensity, he'd be sort of a slugger, but he isn't. He's a boxer, for, first and foremost, and a good one at that. Um, there may be a question about his stamina. Um, Canelo stopped him late. Darrell reckons he was coming on when Plant stopped him. Um, and that could potentially be his biggest problem against Benavidez. But what Plant has to do 
is box and move as best he can. Uh, look, Benavides takes a while to get going. And Plant needs to make sure he wins the opening few rounds and wins them clearly. Because if this fight goes to the cards, he's going to need them. Um, he needs to stick and move, stick and move. But also take his shot to land something on Benavides early as well. Earn his respect. You know, don't allow Benavides to think he can just come barreling forward. Uh, I think a perfect night for Plan is one in which he's able to do that all night. But if Benavides does start to get into his groove, and you've got to assume at some point he will, right. Plan's going to have to prove that he can fight too. But he can't just stand there and get into a slugfest. He has to punch between Benavides' punches, and then he has to try and grab him, turn him, and reset. He's got to try to be the first of the punch at all times. That's much more important to plan than it is to Benavides. Um, and if only for the sake of the judges, he needs to try to be the last as well to land uh, in an exchange. But yeah, key is he just must not stand in front of Benavides for long periods. And he's got to, to use that phrase, treat the ropes as if they're hot lava. The moment he feels his back up against them, he's got to find a way to get off those ropes, even if it's grabbing Benavides and twisting him or punching and getting out of the way. Um, that's what he's got to do. So what about Benavides? What does he bring to the table? And without giving us your pick just yet, how does he win? Uh, well, the main thing he brings to the table is he's a physical freak. Simple as that. In a good way. I don't mean it to sound insulting. He is a six foot two inch super middleweight who loves to fight inside, who can be a volume fighter, a pressure fighter. And he's only gone the distance three times. Uh, once in a six rounder and twice against Ronald Gavril, who maybe just was a tough matchup for Benavidez. Although Benavidez still did more or less shut him out in their rematch. He's a better defensive fighter than it seems at first glance. He, he's good at using his ridiculously long frame and mostly keeping his head out of range. Basically, he, he's a puzzle nobody has solved yet, but he hasn't faced anyone elite. Uh, Caleb Plant is without a doubt better than anyone on Benavidez's resume. Currently, Benavidez's most meaningful wins are against Gavriel, the aforementioned Anthony Durrell, an aging Jaylion Love, and a fully aged and ripened, and then some Lemieux. It's a pretty soft resume, if I'm being honest. The talent jumps off the screen with Benavidez, but he hasn't proven a whole lot. Um, other things to know about him, he's trained by his dad, Jose Benavidez Sr. It's a fighting family. We all know Jose Benavidez Jr., who was considered the better prospect when they were coming up, but David has long since surpassed his older brother. David Benavidez is only 26. Seems like he should be older than that because he's been around yeah. forever. But he turned pro at 16 and started fighting Showtime main events at 20. So uh, for all we know, he hasn't even reached the start of his absolute prime yet. Um, he very much does not like Caleb Plant. Uh, the feeling is mutual. Plant doesn't like him either. I mean, what did Benavidez do to piss him off? Bet against him or something? And, and stupidly <laughs> admit it to him, thinking it would be a nice icebreaker? Jeez. We, we both we both have the same uh, general well of jokes that we dip into, uh, just slightly <laughs> different approaches. Uh, anyway, uh, Benavidez is uh, promising to finish Plant by round six. That would be one hell of an achievement. Winning at all would be impressive and the best win of his career. And so you asked, how does he win? Kind of the opposite of what you were just saying uh, Plant should do. He can't let this turn into too much of a boxing match. He can't let Plant move around on him too much. He needs to pursue and cut off the ring and work the body and eventually land his bombs. And I think a key element of this fight, um, you know, we talked about that Plant isn't a puncher, but he can punch sometimes, as he showed against Durrell. If Benavidez finds that Plant can't hurt him, 
then it's hard to see Benavidez failing to eventually walk him down. That's the key, I think. If Plant has the pop to at least make Benavidez hesitant, we could see the upset. If he doesn't have that pop, then uh, then we won't. Indeed. Um, and before we get to our picks, uh, let's actually get some insight from some of the brightest minds in the sport. Uh, Showtime recently hosted a virtual roundtable in which top trainers previewed the matchup. And we have clips here from a couple of them. Uh, coming up, the man who seems to be in just about everyone's corner these days, Bob Santos. But first, our buddy, Derek Jenks. I think both of them share the, the, the weakness of depth because they never had to dig themselves out of anything. So we don't, that, that's the part about it I think we don't know about. Not saying that they don't have it, just saying that we haven't seen them have to do that because they've been so impressive or so good in the fights that they fought that we don't know if they can have, they don't have the back and forth or the ability to dig themselves out of a hole because there's going to be a point in this fight if not from the first round, that somebody's going to have to, uh, hey, be digging themselves out of a hole. Because, I mean, with, with the way that Benavidez feels about Plant, the Plant is very coy. He can, he can, he plays it very, you know, he plays it very easy. But at the same time, he's like, he's a tough guy too. But he does. So that's what we'll see. I think that will be like, that's a weakness for both of us. We really don't know. And it may not be their weakness. But from our, from my perspective, looking at it, it's something that we don't know. If I was if I was fighting David Benavidez, I would do my best to not let him be himself, right? Because I mean, I think it's very difficult when you let him let those rattle those punches off. I would do whatever I could to take that away, offset him, and really, it'd probably be with the movement maybe best for him to kind of not let him be himself. Because I think what. Whenever you get him standing right in front of him, it's it's always a bad day. You know what I mean? And I think that you got to practice on holding the clincher. Because <laughs> if you don't, you're going to be in for a long night. I mean, because it's like once David lets those, start letting those punches go, hey, man, yeah, you, hey, I don't know what to do. You know what yeah. I'm saying? So I think it's like a lot of holding, a lot of clinching, and a lot of not letting him be himself. You know what? I think people are going to be surprised with one thing about uh, Benavides. You know, he's chose to fight his fights the way he has to be impressive, to make a name for himself, to demand like the Canelo fight, so on and so forth. So I've seen him in the up close and personal in a lot of sparring sessions. And a lot of times I used to tell Junior, we get, you know, I talked to him later that night. Well, what'd you see? I said, man, this guy's like a servant. He's a lot smarter in the ring than people think. He can get up on his toes. He can box with a jab. You know, people just see him kind of square up and come this way. He's choosing to do that, to break you down, to generate a fan base. And that's what his father wants him to do as a trainer And because I've seen it. But I've seen him long with a jab on his toes. He can do a plethora of things. So I think he, he can do more things than Caleb Plant can when he needs to. My only concern with him is right now, all I'm hearing from him is I'm going to destroy this guy, destroy this guy, destroy this guy. You know, that could backfire where you get so aggressive and you run yourself into shots that you don't need to do. So I think if he could stay within himself with, with his God-given abilities, obviously I like him to break down Caleb Plant. And I like Caleb a lot. I think both of their stocks is going to rise because I think he's going to force Plant to fight. He's not going to be able to just box him for 12 rounds. I don't see that happening. So he's going to mm -hmm. force him to fight. And he's going to make Caleb go to a place that I don't think he's ever been to before because in the in the case with Canelo, 
he broke them down methodically, but he never really put them through the fire. He broke them down methodically and then hit them with some big shots and it was over. This guy's going to force him to fight. I know David very well. Like I said, I lived with him. He really can't stand the guy. I mean, he really, when he's saying he wants to put him in the hospital, you could take that to the bank. He wants to put him in the hospital. I mean, <laughs> I know. Him. So you got to control the aggression. You got to know that as the trainer say, look, we got to break him down methodically. You can't just go in there with reckless abandon. And at times I'm hearing that from him. And so, you know, work that work behind the jab, definitely work behind the jab, control the distance, like Derek said, and break him down meth methodically, just you know, pressure, but methodically keep pressuring him, keep jabbing him, keep touching him to the body every opportune time that you can. And then when the time is right, where, you know, uh, Caleb's not going to be able to move as much. If he can't move for 12 rounds, he's going to be in some serious trouble with him when he's got to fight fire for fire when he settles him down. If that happens, it's a, it, it, it's it's good night, Irene, for Caleb Plant. If Caleb Plant can continue to move, tie him up and this and that, then it could be a long night for, for Benavides. That said, I'm picking Benavides uh, by probably maybe late stoppage. Okay, Eric, that's what the real experts have to say. Uh, time for us <laughs> experts to take a shot. Um, what's your pick for Saturday's main event? So my view of this fight has moved a bit since it was first announced. Uh, when it was first announced, or I guess even when it was first being seriously discussed and we were hearing it was in the works, my reaction was good challenge for Benavidez, but he's a huge favorite. He's special. Plant is merely good. There's only one possible winner here. That was my gut reaction. I think it was not a great gut reaction. Uh, with some time to think about it, I've let myself be reminded that Plant is a little closer to elite than I was giving him credit for. So he got stopped by Canelo. It happens. Uh, and Benavidez, yeah, he really hasn't faced a top opponent. Some fringe contenders, some washy ex-champs and contenders, and that's it. Uh, and stylistically, I think Plant really has the moves to give him fits. Uh, and the jab, and the timing of that jab especially... Benavidez is simply not going to outbox Caleb Plant, I don't think. Uh, despite Bob Santos, you heard him there saying that he has these great skills if he chooses to use them, I still don't think he can purely outbox Caleb Plant. So I think there's a real chance that Benavidez falls behind in this fight, maybe even badly, like maybe like five to one through six or something like that. And that's what Derek James was talking about. Someone is going to have to dig himself out of a hole here. I think Benavidez could well find himself in that situation, but I do believe he's the kind of fighter who can and will dig his way out and pull out a win. He can get stronger as a fight goes on. His pressure eventually gets to guys. He's a little like Brandon Figueroa that way, although I'd say with a slightly higher talent upside than Figueroa, um, I think he's going to start cornering Plant and hurting him to the body as the fight gets into its second half. And he isn't going to stop Plant inside six like he promised, but I do think he's going to stop him, maybe while still trailing on the scorecards. I'm going Benavidez KO 10. And and for the record, that was the pick I was planning to make before hearing Bob Santos's comments. I'm not simply stealing his uh, late KO prediction. I just <laughs> sure. happen to agree with it. Sure. Says the guy who's about to make a very similar prediction. <laughs> so um, it'll be the question will be: Are you stealing from me or from Bob Santos? Ah, well, we'll see. Well, right, we? okay. um, uh, look, I do actually think I, I'd be a little surprised if Kayla Plan isn't leading after a few rounds. Um, I think the real fight is: It's possible that Benavidez comes out 
faster than he normally would because he hates plant. Um, but I don't, I don't think he will. I, I think he knows what he's got to do. And, and I just, he just seems to need to get a head of steam going before he really starts. I think the real fight will begin in around round four or so with Caleb comfortably up. I think he'll probably win all the first few rounds. But even when Benavides gets going, it's not going to be one-way traffic. That's what normally happens, right? Um, Benavides, once he gets going, that's it. Caleb's still going to fight him back. Uh, and I think Benavides is going to be a little bit surprised by that. And they're going to exchange rounds. And to somewhat similar vein to you, I think after about eight rounds, I would be not at all surprised if Plant is up 5-3 or 6-2. Um, but I do think, to follow on from another point that you made, um, that Benavides' body work especially will start to take a toll. Plant will become less mobile and his feet will become more planted, not because he feels he has to stand there, but just because Benavides is going to take some of that out of him. Um, and I do think that eventually Caleb's just not going to be able to get out of the way at all and Benavides' studding punches will come in. I kind of see our man... I think when it changes, it'll change suddenly and it'll change conclusively. Mm. And I wouldn't be surprised to see our man, Breadman, getting up on the ring apron, waving the towel mm. in round 11. That's what I've picked. Okay, one round apart. but Radical uh, difference. Yes. <laughs> we did, and Bob Santos didn't give an exact round, so I, I don't really know who you're stealing from. Yeah. <laughs> All right, let's start breaking down the undercard. Three very competitive looking fights, and this undercard prominently showcases the Ramos family, uh, veteran Abel Ramos and his nephew, prospect Jesus Ramos. Abel is in a welterweight 12 rounder against unbeaten Cody Crowley. Kieran, give us your lowdown on, on these two fighters and make your pick. So Crowley turns 30 on the day of the fight, and it's his first outing since his father committed suicide in June of last year. Um, he's dedicating the fight to his dad. Um, he's partnered with a suicide awareness campaign in his native Ontario. So he's got a lot motivating him here. Uh, and, you know, sometimes that can be a distraction. Sometimes it can be an intensification of focus. I suspect it'll be the latter. Um, the amazing thing about Crowley is he trained himself until he was 19. Um, he's now trained by Eben Kaysen, the younger brother of Hasim Rockman. Um, he admits that he lost his first amateur kickboxing contest to a 14-year-old girl and says, that doesn't make somebody quit something, I don't know what will. Um, he's 21-0 with nine KOs, uh, a little like Tim Bradley. He, he sort of has the kind of build, you look at him and you suspect he'd be more of a puncher than he in fact is. But he has scored a couple of good wins lately. Um, He'll likely be favored, I would think, against Ramos, who's 27, 5, and 2 with 21 stoppages. Uh, among other things, Ramos has been on Showbox three times. He's gone 0 2 and 1 in those contests, but look who he went uh, 0 2 and 1 against Ivan Baranchik, Regis Progre, and Maurice Hooker. I mean, no shame there. Right. Um, in his one tilted alphabet belt, he lost a split decision toward Dennis Ugas. So again, you know, you're not, it, it's one of those things where perhaps the number of losses in your loss column is a little bit misleading. But that said, I think the fact that he consistently does come up short when he does step up is a little bit indicative of how this fight to get, will go. I picture a hard fought, hard paced, skillful contest that is consistently close round by round but that is also consistently in Crowley's favor round by round. I think it might be one of those fights where the judges' scores adequately reflect the totality, but feel wide because Ramos will be in the fight much of the way. I think he might even hurt Crowley a couple of times. I think Crowley will buzz him too, and we'll end up taking a 
reasonably wide unanimous decision. All right. Um, what, what an interesting life Cody Crowley has led to this. Right? Point. Talk about a self-made man who has faced and overcome adversity. In addition to all that stuff that, that you mentioned, he, he's also co-promoted five of his own fights. And <laughs> and this was an interesting detail that he, he suffered from an autoimmune condition in 2019, yeah. during which his body began to break down and he treated it holistically and says, I eliminated toxicity. Uh, nice, uh, yeah. nothing, nothing this guy can't overcome. Um, <laughs> this is sort of a crossroads fight, undefeated fighter versus journeyman with five losses, even though they're just about the exact same age. Um, it's hard not to see this being an exciting bout. You know, Ramos has been in his share of thrillers, most notably against uh, Ivan Baranchik on Showbox. Uh, but Crowley also makes action fights. Uh, he said, uh, if it's up to me, I'll fight in a phone booth until someone gets knocked out. Sign me up for that. Sounds sounds fun. Um, Crowley, you know, of course, hardcore fans of the podcast will recall that we sold him short entering the Abdu so Kakarov fight. We, we both yep. thought he had really slow hands and little yep. chance of winning. And of course, he won and wasn't actually slow fisted at all. Um, Ramos is the much more seasoned fighter here. And yeah, he has five losses, but you, you talked about who they were against. Uh, I, I, the split decision to Ugas really stands out. That's a great result. <laughs> you lose a split decision yeah. to Ugas. A majority decision to Jamal James in Minneapolis. Nothing wrong with that. Uh, Ramos is a solid fighter. Um, I don't think he's an obvious decline. Um, this is a really close competitive fight on paper. I think we're probably looking at a war and I think we're probably looking at another hard luck loss for Ramos on the scorecards. Crowley is younger in ring years. He's more energetic. I think he takes it. I'm making the same pick as you, unanimous decision. But I think maybe a, a, a real close one, not such a clear mm. cut unanimous decision. And I would not be at all surprised if we're on the next podcast talking about, well, we have another early fight of the year candidate. I, I could see this fight going that way. Yeah, I'm we could have a fair bit of that actually on this card. Yes. Um, we uh, you, you mentioned that the the Ramos family is well represented here. Uh, we last saw uh, Abel's nephew Jesus when he avenged his uncle's loss to Luke Santa Maria by a unanimous decision win on the undercard of Tank Davis's win over Rolly Romero. He's taking on fellow unbeaten Joey Spencer in a ten round contest at junior middleweight. Eric, uh, I'll be honest, I came into this not knowing very much about Spencer at all. What can you tell me about him? Can he beat Jesus Ramos? And will he? Um, yeah, he, he's the only guy on this card who's never fought on Showtime, but he has fought on non-Showtime PBC shows plenty, uh, on Fox undercards, Fox pay-per-view undercards. He was off TV on the Showtime Zoo Gachet show last year. So I've seen him fight several times. He's 16-0 and with 10 KOs, 22 years old, another birthday boy. He'll turn 23 this Friday. Looks like he's 12 years old. Uh, he's from <laughs> Michigan. Uh, hasn't stepped up much yet. Only really began to in his last fight. He won a near shutout 10-round decision over Kevin Salgado. That was impressive. Easily a career-best win. The only B-level and up opponent that Spencer has faced so far. Um, a few fun facts. He has sparred with an all-time great albeit of a different gender than he, Clarissa Shields. Um, he's trained by his dad, Jason, who worked for years as an assistant to Virgil Hunter in Northern California. So Joey lived out there in California for three and a half years. He's a good, solid prospect who, prior to the Salgado fight, fight I would have said, eh, good-looking white kid, could be all hype. Um, but the Salgado fight convinced me, and 
probably anyone watching, that, that there's at least something there. Um, Ramos, meanwhile, also 22 and not turning 23 this week, uh, from Arizona, has a record of 19-0 with 15 KOs. He's a southpaw. Like Spencer, he's trained by his dad, Jesus Sr. He's also had a notable sparring partner, Terrence Crawford. Um, this is going to be the eighth time that he and his uncle have shared a card. That's uh, that's interesting. Um He's the naturally smaller guy in this matchup, uh, having moved up in weight from 140 and 147, although he has been at 54 his last three fights, including that win over Santa Maria that you mentioned and an excellent win over Brian Mendoza. He's easily the more tested and proven guy. And that's really the key difference here, that that Spencer just stepped up to 10-rounders and contender-level opponents in his last fight, whereas Ramos has been at that level for a couple of years. He's been treated like the more promising prospect, I think he is the slightly more promising prospect, and he's my pick here, although I expect a heck of a fight. Um, I, I think, like you were saying, this could be, if the if the other Ramos isn't in a fight of the year contender, maybe this one will be, or maybe they both will be. Um, I, I see Ramos picking up steam in the later rounds uh, while Spencer loses steam, but I, I think this goes the 10-round distance. My pick is Jesus Ramos by clear-cut unanimous decision. Just a little too skilled. The southpaw style will cause just enough problems. Huge credit to both of these guys for taking this fight. My pick is Ramos. Yeah, I, I found it a tough fight to pick. Um, you know, I, two, we've got two young unbeaten guys with really different styles here. Uh, I've been watching a little bit of a video of Spencer over the last few days, and um, I, I like the way he fights. He's nice and compact. He throws short, sharp punches, and both his sort of overhand right and his left hook are, are solid. But from what I've seen of him, he seems very much a two-punch combination kind of guy, whereas right. Ramos looks like he's much more likely to let his punches fly when he has the opportunity and to do so from a variety of angles. I think Spencer's got some nice heft in his punches, but Ramos looks like he's got that extra unpredictability and maybe that extra bit of fluidity, to be honest. Um, And another thing I noted is is really what you talked about, that he is more battle-tested so far, Ramos. Uh, I I do agree with you. I think this is going to be a quality fight uh, and a I echo your point about credit to both men for taking it. Uh, but I like Ramos's variety and fluidity that little bit more. And so I'm going to pick also Jesus Ramos by unanimous decision. All right. Uh, so those are our picks for Ramos versus Spencer, a meeting of two undefeated boxers. Chris Colbert versus Jose Valenzuela, also a 10 rounder. This one at 130 pounds features two fighters coming off the first losses of their careers. Uh, Colbert is 16 and one and was last seen losing to Hector Garcia. Valenzuela is 12 and one and last time was stopped in three rounds by Edwin De Los Santos. Kieran, who can better withstand a second consecutive loss and which of these two will have to do that on Saturday night? I think a lot depends on the nature of that second defeat. Yeah, they both lost last time around, but the nature of those defeats were very, very different. Um, Valenzuela went down swinging. He knocked De Los Santos down in the second round, was trying to do it again when he got caught himself and dropped. And then he got dropped again in the third and stopped uh, shortly thereafter. Colbert, on the other hand, as we know, was a big favorite against Garcia, but he got out hustled and dropped and basically went into his shell down the stretch and even admitted afterward that he kind of did that. Um, Anyone can get dropped and stopped in a firefight. Fans and promoters and matchmakers don't mind, particularly if you get dropped and stopped in the firefight, and order broadcasters. Um, but retreating mentally in the middle of a contest, that's hard to come back from. Um, and so I think that the pressure is 
probably more on Colbert for that reason. And, and also because he was probably the more highly regarded prospect slash contender of the two. In fact, was one of the more heavily hyped uh, contenders in the sport. Uh, and it's a fascinating clash of styles here. There's more nuance and subtlety and creativity to Colbert, more speed, more defense, more boxing ability, but a lot less power. Uh, and he crumbled against Garcia because of that relentless pressure. Uh, and to be fair, he said he may have been weight drained. Valenzuela doesn't bring that sort of high volume relentlessness, but boy, he does bring heavy hands. Um, we haven't seen Colbert for more than a year since that loss. And he said there was method behind that. He said he wanted to make sure that he came back right. Mm. I think he will. Uh, I'm not ready to write off Chris Colbert. I think we'll see that his speed and his combinations will prove too much here. I think we'll see him punch between Valenzuela's punches. I think Valenzuela may have a bit of a hard time catching up to him. If Valenzuela could shorten his punches and throw more of them, we might see something different. But I think a puncher who can sometimes leave himself open while punching, like Valenzuela does sometimes, should be, you know, in, in a little bit of trouble against Chris Colbert, at least in terms of, of winning rounds. I think Colbert actually, this will be fun again. Don't get me wrong, not least because there'll be that constant uncertainty about whether Venezuela is going to be able to catch him. Right. Colbert's going to have to work hard, but I think Colbert's got the speed and the skills to right the wrong uh, that he experienced against Hector Garcia. Um, I think he'll win it by unanimous decision. And, well, that makes for me three decisions and one 11th round TKO. <laughs> so if you're anything like me and we're anything correct, we better get our nap in on Saturday, buddy. <laughs> I, I think so. Uh, yeah, this is about the most that we've agreed on on picks on a four-fight card that I can ever remember. All we've got is the the one-round difference in the, in the main event here. Um, look, we were very high on Colbert before he looked lost yeah. to Garcia. Um, and... You know, maybe we still should be. A loss to Hector Garcia, who it turns out is very good. It's certainly no reason to give up on Chris Colbert. Valenzuela, I haven't felt the same enthusiasm for him as a prospect. Fun fighter, good offensive fighter, very lacking on the defensive side. Uh, one thing I, that I'd look for here in terms of how Valenzuela may approach this, you know, with, with Colbert off 13 months and, and not having actually won a fight in 20 months, does Valenzuela try to jump on him? You know, just mm. just all out aggression the first couple of rounds. Try to get that pound of flesh, as Bobby Chez used to say. That may be his best shot here. Um, the other thing to watch uh, is the stances. You know, Valenzuela's a southpaw. Colbert's a switch hitter, but Valenzuela got stopped by a southpaw in De Los Santos. So will Colbert try to attack from lefty angles? I got to say, but before I make my pick, I just got to say, at the risk of sounding like a shill and a homer and an ass kisser and all that, this is another absolutely outstanding Showtime card. It really is. It, yeah. the, just in terms of competitive matchmaking, you, you can't ask for much more than this. There's not a single fight on this show where you know the winner going in. Even if we happen to be picking the same four guys, <laughs> none right. of them are easy. For I think maybe the main event where betting-wise, there's a, one guy is about a two-to-one underdog. That may be the easiest fight on the whole card for me to actually pick the winner, and it's not easy. Um, so, you know, clearly what I'm leading to here is that I found this one not easy, but I do lean Colbert because of the speed and skills. You never know what's going to happen when a boxer's back is up against the wall. They both have their backs up against the wall coming into this fight. So, you know, will either one go into a shell or will either one step up and deliver a spectacular performance? A lot of unknowns, but I'm going to go with 
the same pick as yours. What's probably sort of the chalky pick here, Colbert using his boxing skill to pull out a competitive but clear unanimous decision. All right. Uh, we have a few fights from last weekend to look back on quickly and uh, just one or two others apart from the Plant Benavidez card to preview. Uh, first, let's get some quick takes on the fights that took p- place this past week. Uh, pretty much all the analysis here is going to come from you since I've been uh, unable to watch anything but highlights since I was uh, either out of town at a Bruce concert or pretending to be out of town at a Bruce concert to make (laughs) you carry this segment. So uh, on Thursday in Montreal, little known Michael Eifert outpointed veteran Jean Pascal via unanimous decision over 12 rounds at light heavyweight on Saturday in Dubai, Jarrell, big baby Miller, all 333 pounds of him. That's one big baby Uh, bludgeoned Lucas, big daddy Brown uh, into a sixth round defeat. And also on Saturday, Mercedo Hesta, in uh, perhaps a mild upset, outpointed Jojo Diaz over 10 rounds in a junior welterweight contest via wildly divergent scores. 97-93 Diaz and 99-91 and 98-92 Hesta. Uh, With the win, Hesta improves to 34-3-3 while Diaz drops his third in a row to fall to 32-4-1. That fight was supposed to be the co-main of that zone card in Long Beach, but was bumped up to the main event after Zerto Ramirez unofficially weighed 182.6 for his light heavyweight contest with Gabriel Rosado, which the California Commission has confirmed will net him a ban. Kieran, your thoughts on any or all of the above, particularly what the future holds for Diaz and how Ramirez could have missed weight so badly? So I was with Freddie Roach, who trains Gabe Rosado a couple right. of days before that fight. Um, and I joked with him that I hoped his towel throwing arm was in shape because, <laughs> you know, you and I have made it pretty yeah. clear what we thought about that matchup. Uh, I don't know if he decided the best way to save Rosado from a beating was to send a dozen pizzas to Zerto's hotel room the night before the way in, but um, it's the only way I can think of that you can miss weight that spectacularly. I think you just have to have not tried properly. Uh, a couple of pounds, maybe, but... I'm not aware that he's expressed any difficulty in making weight before. Rosado himself even reported that at one stage that morning, Ramirez even weighed 187, um, which is unfathomable. Um, even 182.6. That's just, that's that's an absolutely appalling and unprofessional behavior from Zerdo. You know, what sucks about this is that Rosado will have put in a lot of work in camp and he won't get paid a nickel. And and that's one of the the failings of the way this business treats its athletes. Now um, I, I I did see I don't mean to inter- interrupt you. I did see I'm reported sorry. that they that the California Commission was going to get him some small. Oh, that's fantastic. Yes. So that's I mean, it, it will not be anywhere near the full purse he was promised, but that that some somehow there is money in the. I, actually, I don't know if it's the commission or the promoter, but uh, okay. so we, weak job uh, by me passing along the reporting. But I did see reporting that he's getting some money on the, out of this that, at least. That's good. But yes. clearly not his purse and everything that he would have right. um, trained for. And what makes it worse, honestly, is now Gabe Rosado will get another fight, mm-hmm. presumably against someone who's less likely to bludgeon him into retirement than Zerto Ramirez. My God, he might even get somebody who he could win against and so be encouraged to continue. Um, all the way around, this is just a, a bad situation. Um, not much to say about Miller Brown. It was an extremely large man bludgeoning a conventionally very large man. <laughs> right. Um, I I didn't see Pascal's loss to Eifert, but I did read reports that he looked old and slow. So 
you know, maybe age is finally catching up to him, or maybe this is what happens when you can no longer juice because you've been caught juicing. You know, maybe. who knows? I'm not going to say anything. Yeah. Um, uh, as for Hester Diaz, again, um, notwithstanding the immense responsibility that was on my shoulders um, with your absence, I still only caught highlights. Um, most folks on social media seem to feel it was a close win for Hester or perhaps a draw. But also by the same token, there wasn't an enormous amount of outrage with the scores, partly because Hester won, and I think the consensus was that that was the right man winning, and partly because it felt like it was one of those fights where uh, to sort of fall back on what I was talking about with one of the undercard fights, the 10-point must system can sometimes make a fight appear right. wider in the aggregate than it was round by round. And if you think fight rounds are close, but one judge just likes one thing and the other judge likes something, you can end up with fairly divergent scores like that. Um, so Hess is now on a two-fight win streak after very nearly hanging them up, which is a credit to him and to his new trainer, Marvin Simodio. Diaz, though, he's dropped three in a row and things seem to be falling apart for him. In and out of the ring. Um, he was accused of attempted coercion and enticement of a minor a year ago. He was arrested for uh, last month for uh, driving under the influence and child neglect. Um, he appears to have alcohol-related issues. They appear to be a constant here. Um, he also himself weighed in more than three pounds over for this fight, um, which went sort of unremarked upon because of Ramirez's right. blunder. And in fact, he was in camp with Ramirez, which you wonder what the hell was going on there. Um, and perhaps most tellingly, he's going through that telltale phase of covering himself with tattoos. Um, yeah. I remember that we once felt that Jojo was one of the nicest men in boxing, perhaps even too nice to be a champion. I remember right. even saying that yeah. during a podcast. And he yeah. chuckled and he giggled and he was lovely. But um, it feels as if some kind of demons have gotten a hold of him a little bit. And that seems to be affecting his life outside the ring and indeed inside it. Uh, I hope that whatever's going on with Jojo Diaz, that he's able to resolve these issues. And whether that translates to more success inside the ring or just a better life outside of it, I hope he's able to get a hold of himself there because it doesn't seem like things are going really well for Jojo right now. Yeah. And uh, I'll just add, speaking of... Uh heavily tattooed men uh, that, that I watched the ending of the Miller Brown fight and uh, the sight of Brown at the end. I was sad. He, he just, he looked like an old man regretting a lot of his life choices yeah. as the ref was trying to decide what, what to do and counting and stepping in and all that. And Brown yeah. just looked lost in there. I, I, I sure hope he's finished with his uh, yeah. boxing career after this. I do too. Absolutely. Uh, okay, switching our gaze back to what's ahead of us, uh, in addition to the Benavidez plant pay-per-view, there are just a couple of other fights to note this coming weekend. In Manchester, England, Lawrence Oakley defends a cruiserweight belt against David Light, and in Fresno, California, Jose Ramirez takes on Richard Comey in a 140-pound 12-rounder with Senecia Estrada in the co-main against Tina Ruprecht. Uh, Kieran, anything interest you there? Oakley's a, an interesting fighter um, with, it looks like a lot of out, upside. Um, outside of the UK, I don't think he's really garnered much attention, but he's 18-0. He's held an alphabet belt for a couple of years. Uh, he's got a win over Christoph Glowacki, among others. Um, he's pretty good. Uh, I, I know nothing about Light, who is from New Zealand, other than that he is 20-0 with 12 KOs against names I do not know. The only name I recognized on uh, his resume was Trent Broadhurst. And I thought, who the hell is Trent Broadhurst? That sounds familiar. And then the only reason I recognize that name is that he fought uh, Dimitri Bivol and Blake Caparello, both of whom knocked him out in one round. And <laughs> light stopped 
three. So that's kind of the level of opposition that Light has had mm. going into that fight with Oakley. Um, I think Ramirez Comey is a really interesting matchup. It isn't quite loser leaves town level, but it's getting close to that for Comey, who's yeah. 34 and one. He's 36, that's in 30 wins, four, four losses and one draw, not right. 34 and one. Right. Um, he's 36 years old, and he's got just the one win since stopping Ray Beltran in 2019. Um, Ramirez is very much a viable contender, but he would see that status severely dented if he if he can't get past the Ghanaian. Um, and I like Estrada a lot. Um, but her opponent, Ruprecht, uh, also looks solid. She's 12-0-1. She has a win over Yocaste Valley, who is one of the hot names in women's boxing right now uh, as well, back in 2018. So that should be a pretty good matchup. I'm looking forward to that card. All right. Uh, Kieran. It is time for the fight game, and uh, you can't beat my score from last week. You can only hope to tie it, uh, and I will say nothing about how easy or hard that will be to do. No setting of expectations, no added pressure. I replaced saying how easy and hard it is with, I'm not going to say how easy or hard it is. That's how much dick. Yeah, well, at, at least that shtick doesn't add any pressure, right? I think we can say that. So. Sure. All right, let's just play the game. Are you ready? I am. All right, clue number one. This fight went the distance and was fairly easy to score with all three judges handing in cards reading 114-111. Okay. It's a little, it's a little bit of a thinker so first clue. Um, did it involve somebody we, we just talked about? Was it just Taylor Jose Ramirez? Uh, it was not. That's a that's a fine guess. I don't remember what the scores of that fight were. Something but... like that. It was actually okay. maybe yeah, something like that. Or maybe that was one fourteen, one twelve. I think something mm-hmm. like that. But it was in that. But, okay, ballpark. But okay. All right. Solid first guess. Incorrect. Here we go. Clue number two. The winner by unanimous decision would repeat the victory five years later by tenth round knockout. <sighs> And I promise you that after this, the clues start providing more information. The first two are the first two are a little, little uh, opaque. Is that the word I'm looking for? I don't know. But, mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So here's what you have so far. Again, it was uh, unanimous scores of 114-111, and the winner repeated the victory five years later by 10th round knockout. Mm, somebody somewhere has got it and is screaming at me, but <laughs> yeah, I'm not getting it. Okay. All right. Here we go. Clue three. The winner of this fight is now in the Hall of Fame. The loser is not. The loser entered with a record of 24-0. And the co-featured bout was won by a fighter who was also exactly 24-0 and is himself now in the Hall of Fame. And as I read all that, I realize there's a lot of information there, but it may not get you any closer. (laughs) (laughs) But it kind of follows on. Thank you for making the point last week that sometimes when we're putting the clues together, uh-huh. we think, oh, God, I'm giving away too much. Right. And actually, if you don't, if you're not, if you're not already, right, yes, nothing. Right. But um, so, but so the key things here: are the guy who won is a Hall of Famer, and the co-feature was won by a Hall of Famer who was 24 and 0, which happens to be the record of the loser of the fight in question. Okay, so I'm just going to read out the list of everybody who's in the Hall of Fame. And... <laughs> You can stop me if I'm getting close. <laughs> I'll allow you to throw out one random name of a Hall of Famer and uh, have that count as the beginning of your guess. How's that sound? There you go. So any, at least I know it's relatively recent because it was a 12-round contest. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I'm see. I'm I can't think of the. I'm trying to think. Yeah, the problem with this one is if you don't, if you're not on the right track, there aren't really like other guesses you can throw out there because you know those guesses are wrong based on the amount of information in the clue. You wouldn't throw out this fight that's passing through your mind because such and such was not 24 and 0 or the scores right. were not 114 111 or certain right. things you may know so should we go on to clue four we better had yeah okay all right here we go this card took place at boardwalk hall in atlantic city and i will get specific about the co-feature your man <laughs> crush miguel Cotto, scored probably the most thrilling knockout victory of his entire career oh okay all right so um, that was against What's-His-Face when he got knocked down. <laughs> Correct. Kodo versus What's-His-Face. The Colombian fella. <laughs> yes. Would uh, you like uh, me to say his name the, just for the listener's benefit? No, I'm trying to think of what no. <laughs> I mean, that's not the fight in question, so I can say it if it may. it's not going to ha- change your guess. My head was, Klitsch, was Klitschko the main event? Maybe. <laughs> I don't know what that weird voice I just used to say was maybe was. Real? Say Sam Peter? Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. That is that is the fight. The name of the the Colombian fellow. It is uh, Ricardo Torres. That was it. If I have the first name right, it was Ricardo, yep, right? That was, yeah, that's it. Yeah. Um. Yes. Yeah. So is this. So the, the correct answer is yes. Vladimir Klitschko's first fight with Sam Peter, September twenty fourth, two thousand five, and I thought there was a chance you would get it in one because of the scores being the yep. very unique one fourteen one eleven, which in this case represented Klitschko getting knocked down in three of the rounds and winning the other nine rounds on every single scorecard. Um, but but if you but it was one of those could have been gotten in one. If you weren't going to get it in one, it doesn't become yeah. kind of obvious until clue four. You know what's amazing to me? The thing that most blows me away is that Klitschko was just 24 and 0 going into that. Because what did he want? No, 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 no. It was it was uh, Peter was 24 and 0. Oh, Peter was 24 and 0. Yes. Uh, maybe maybe the the uh, the wording of all the various records and Hall of Fames and whatnot may have confused me. But but both Peter and Kodo uh, were 24 and 0. Uh, was uh, was what was buried in that clue. But uh, but it's it's interesting you mentioning Klitschko's record because clue five, the one designed to make it very obvious, is. The winner of the fight was 44 and three at the time. He finished his career 64 and five with 53 KOs and was knocked down three times in this nightmarish fight, but won every round in which he didn't touch the canvas. Yeah, so, yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. Before his career petered out over the last half of the fight. <laughs> uh, I didn't, I didn't think to uh, include that uh, that one. Yeah, but yeah. Well, you didn't need clue five anyway. Got it on four. Well, once you got specific about my mind crush, that was it. Right. <laughs> I would hope so. I would hope you anything related to Miguel Cotto in any way, you would get straight to the answer. Although you couldn't remember Ricardo Torres's name. I don't know why but it was the pressure. That's what it was. It was <laughs> yes, I didn't put any intentional pressure on you. That's true. That's true. Ricardo Torres, though, he was, I mean, my God, he was in a, a number of just incredibly exciting fights. And um, yeah, I remember that was the first time because that Cotto like showed real vulnerability but also showed himself to have the potential to be a real exciting fighter oh yeah i mean i i remember that the buzz coming out of that was like oh my god did we just find the new arturo gaddy in miguel yeah yeah and here we are talking about the co-main instead of the fight (laughs) well you know if i have a choice between uh 
Desert Island DVD collection of all Miguel Cotto <laughs> fights or all Vladimir Klitschko fights. It's not Dude. a very hard decision. So, Indeed. But this was an exciting Vladimir Klitschko fight against Sam Peter. It was, actually, yes. Yeah. And, uh, and full credit. And I think so it's just a couple of fights removed from the Lehman Brewster disaster, I think. Or might have even been just one fight removed from the Lehman Yeah, I think, I, think he, I think two or three. Uh, yeah. He had a couple. He had the Deverell Williamson kind of shaky oh, technical yes. decision win and maybe one other. And then, yeah, yes. then this one where he was bouncing off the canvas but somehow overcame it. Right. First time he showed us that he could actually get up off the canvas. So. Yes. Yeah. Oh, that was a good one. I like that one. All right. I, I approve. All right. Uh, news time. Uh, and I don't think there's a very obvious main event this week, um, not least because we still have no confirmation of Tyson Fury, Alexander Usyk, which I think would be the main event. Uh, and if anything, there may be a wee bit more skepticism about whether this will in fact happen or happen on April 29th or not. Um, but here's what we do have for this past week of news. Um, first of all, uh, Canelo Alvarez confirmed what we had reported a few weeks ago, that his next defense will be at home in Jalisco, Guadalajara, on May 6th, his first outing in Mexico since he defeated Kermit Cintron in 2011. His opponent will be Britain's John Ryder, whom American fans will know mostly for his close and somewhat controversial points lost to Callum Smith and his close and somewhat controversial points win over Daniel Jacobs. Um, another recently confirmed returnee, Cecilia Brekus, uh, the former women's pound for pound number one, will take on a mighty tough challenge in the form of former super featherweight titleist Terry Harper, who was dethroned by that by a bizarre KO by Alicia Baumgartner in November 2021. And that will be on the Katie Taylor Chantel Cameron card in Dublin on May 20th. Um, in what may have been the most viral, commented upon, and chuckled at news of the week, Don King announced the signing of Adrian Bronner. And that's literally all I have to say about that. <laughs> and um, BJ Flores, who is best known these days as Jake Paul's trainer, announced on social media on Friday that he had been shot in the leg during an attempted robbery while his car was at a stoplight in Medellin, Colombia. Fortunately, he appears to be okay. Uh, Eric, that's a very brief but eclectic collection of news items. Uh, what do you think about all that then? Well, first, uh, let me discuss the non-news, Fury Usyk. Um, when we discussed it last week, we did pass along Dan's reporting uh, that June or July, uh, Dan being, of course, Dan Raphael from ESPN, uh, his <laughs> reporting that uh, that June or July could be more realistic than holding to that April 29th date. So I'll just go on record now that I'd be pretty damn surprised if this happens April 29th. It's just getting too close. I would also, though, be mildly surprised if they don't get it done for some time this spring or summer. I do think we'll see it. Uh, Canelo versus Ryder. It's fine for what it is. Uh, a homecoming fight yeah. for the mega super duper star fighter. A fight that he isn't supposed to lose. Uh, you know, Ryder is solid. Uh, this isn't going to be as easy as, say, Oscar versus Patrick Charpentier in terms of like a superstar in a showcase fight in between his bigger bouts. But it should be a lopsided Canelo win, barring some sudden steep decline from him. He is 32. He's had 62 pro fights. He's moved up and down the scale a bit. You know, it's not impossible that he shows some wear and tear. And, and Ryder does have the basic skills and determination to maybe take advantage if that's the case. Um, but as long as Canelo is indeed still Canelo, then this is a showcase which he is more than entitled to. Um, Cecilia Brakus. She's 41 now. Uh, you remember we interviewed her in Vegas about five years ago, and I got her to admit she was feeling her age a bit. Um, I sort of tried to make it relatable, talking about how uh, how washed uh, I felt uh, once I hit my mid-30s or whatever. But she said she couldn't do as much road work because of her knees. Um, 
Then she went and lost twice to Jessica McCaskill in 2020 and 21. I don't know how much she has left, but I think this is a good fight, a worthwhile fight. If Brakus wants to fight on, Harper will tell her and us whether that's a good idea. Like, you know, if Cecilia wins this, then okay, she's still a viable fighter. I I think this fight should tell her if that's the case. BJ Flores, um, wow, that's a scary situation. Seemed it could have been a lot worse. Uh, It seems he did some maneuvering to make it the leg and not possibly the head. Uh, I don't know if he's mixing with the wrong crowds or or going to the wrong places at the wrong times. But um, I know BJ. I've worked with BJ I don't like hearing that he's finding himself in near-death situations. Uh, I hope he recovers nicely from the gunshot wound. Sounds like uh, he, he will. And uh, I, I just hope he stays the hell away from uh, Pablo Escobar's stomping grounds going forward. Maybe not the best place to be. Maybe. I don't know. Um, uh, and I saved the worst for last. This uh, Don King-Adrian Broner thing. I mean... Uh, <laughs> This uh, this fight is bound to end in a double knockout, right? Um, uh, De- Detloff had a good tweet, uh, the photo of King and Broner that everyone saw with the contracts oh. and the stacks of cash. He wrote, Siri, show me the dumbest goddamn thing a fighter can do in the year 2023. <laughs> uh, I replied that it's also the dumbest goddamn thing a promoter can do. Um, and, th- and there was a very good response from Alex Crichton uh, in regard to signing with DK being the dumbest thing a fighter can do. He replied, I don't know, man. Hard to top this car crash and shared a picture of Connor Ben going on Piers Morgan's show. That's <laughs> uh, pretty good. Uh, Kieran, I'll, I'll, I'll put you on the spot here. Over okay. under 0.5 fights Broner actually has under the DK, DKP banner. You going over or under? Will he have a fight for Don King? I'll take the under. Yeah, I think I'll take the under. Probably a wise move. I think I'm going yeah. under as well. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Uh, all right. Let's wrap up this episode with yeah. this week's top five list, shall we? Um, last week, you tasked me with coming up with a list of the top five boxes from New England. And my initial thought was that it might be a fairly tough task. Uh, but it actually proved easier than I expected. When I thought about it, there are actually more... Uh, historically good fighters from from this part of the country than i realized um i actually had my top five nailed down pretty early on and then it was just a case of figuring out my honorable mentions but anyway enough prologue let's dive right into the list shall we yes we shall um at number five i put john l sullivan uh, the Boston Strong Boy, the first heavyweight champion of the Marcus of Queensbury era, having been the bare knuckle era champion for many years beforehand. He was the Philo Bedo of his time, traveling from town to town and offering all comers money. And the kids won't understand that reference, but trust me, it was brilliant. Um, and offering <laughs> I guess I'm, one of, I'm one of the kids, I guess. I don't get it either. Uh, any which, uh, every which way but loose, any which no, way you never can. Never seen it. No. Movies. Yeah, well, anyway. Um, well, somebody somewhere enjoyed it. Yes, uh, hopefully. Um, listening and thought, yeah, that's pretty good. Um, <laughs> he was he would travel from town to town and offer all comers money if they could beat him. Um, his 1889 bout with Jake Kilrain is considered the first modern heavyweight title fight. And it was certainly the first professional prize fight to attract large amounts of media attention. Sullivan won it when Kilrain's corner threw in the towel in the 75th yes 75th (laughs) round um he lost his title and his only recorded pro defeat which was the last known outing of his career to james j corbett who knocked him out in a brief contest in the 21st round so 
when I laid down the challenge, uh, I was thinking of John L. Sullivan and, and assuming that he would be in my top five as well. But I don't want to spoil anyone who may be coming up on your list or in your honorable mentions. There was one fighter I'd forgotten about who I ended up putting at five and Sullivan. Okay. Sullivan ended up my number six, but uh, certainly a fine choice. And uh, he he was who I was thinking of when I said you could have fighters on the list who fought a century or more apart. Uh, I was going back to John L. Sullivan. OK, uh, number four. Uh, is Sam Langford. Um, okay. He's the first of two men that I've got on this list to be born outside of New England, um, but like the other one, became indelibly associated with the region, as evidenced by his nicknames, of which the most famous, if unpalatable to our ears, was the Boston Tar Baby. Um, Langford is widely considered the greatest fighter never to become world champion, and a primary reason why he didn't is that he was black at a time where black prize fighters didn't often get the chance to fight for uh, championships of the world. Uh, the amazing thing about Langford, who was born in Halifax, Nova Scotia, but escaped his abusive father before selling in Boston, was that he was just five foot seven and a half, but for all the way from lightweight to heavyweight, winning far more than he lost. His official record reads, 174, 29, and 38. Um, he did fight for the welterweight title in 1904, but had to content himself with a disputed draw. Uh, ironically, it was Jack Johnson who outpointed him in a non-title fight in 1906, who allegedly refused to defend his title against him because of how dangerous he was. Um, at the end of his career, as the story goes, Langford fought at least one bout when he was effectively blind, but he managed to fight it by listening for his opponent and cracking him in close when he could hear his breath. Wow. His ruse was discovered when he walked to the wrong corner repeatedly. Um, Langford's is an amazing story, uh, equally sad and inspirational. I've written about him in the past. Um, Clay Moyle has written a very good biography of him. He's absolutely one of my all-time favorite fighters i would love to rank him number one but the achievements of those above him are just too great to be ignored but sam langford my number four yeah a great choice and he's the one i wasn't thinking of when i initially made the assignment and then <laughs> gotcha. i thought of him and i thought uh he he gets in over john l sullivan so i have him at number five which now has me wondering i guess i'll i'll find out soon enough which of which of my guys didn't make your list uh either either because you rate him lower than i do or perhaps uh, overlook somebody but i guess we'll find out uh, uh, move along here it could very well be the guy who i thought he should be in the top five list but i really wanted to include sullivan in language <laughs> okay. I guess so we'll he's see. a very strong number six okay. I, I i'm guessing it's that person okay anyway, gotcha um uh, but at number three, and some people might gasp that I have him this low, Rocky Marciano, the mm. Brockton blockbuster, um, needs very little introduction, of course. One of the most famous and celebrated world heavyweight champions of all time, famously retiring with a record of 49-0 and with 43 knockouts, won the world title against uh, Jersey Joe Walcott in 1952, scoring a 13th round knockout after falling far behind on points and with his nose badly split and bleeding he then beat Walcott again Roland Lestarza, Don Cockle, Ezra Charles twice and Archie Moore before retiring at age 32. The Rock is my number three. Yeah, I mean, he's like a really polarizing figure yeah. in terms of where, how high, everyone agrees he's an all-time great, but y y you could put him at number one on this list and nobody would say that's a terrible choice. You could put him at like four or five and yeah. totally understandable. I also had him at number three, same as you. Okay. Number two, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, uh, like Marciano, closely associated with Brockton, Massachusetts, where he fought for his entire professional career, despite having been born in New Jersey. And yeah, I rank him higher than Marciano because I think he was better. Um, 
the biggest knock against Marciano is that his biggest wins came against aging greats, uh, some of whom had him in real trouble. Um, but Hagler, uh, he had a few defeats on his record, unlike Marciano, but he got to the top through hard graft against the toughest opposition possible. He was never given any advantage. He was never the favorite son. When he won the world title, world middleweight title, finally he had beer thrown at him. Um, and he probably should have had the title before that because had Vito Antofermo not been gifted a draw against him um, beforehand. And of course, he always brooded over his treatment by an eventual controversial loss to Sugar Ray Leonard. Look, like Langford, he's one of my very favorite fighters. He always brought dignity to an undignified business. And he retired with class two. Uh, yeah. A terrific boxer, a real fighter. And will always have his epic win over Thomas Turns to remember him by. The only downside for me with including him on this list was I felt sad all over again mm. at the fact that he's no longer with us. And now you made me feel sad all over again, you jerk. There you go. <laughs> um, but yeah, can't can't argue with uh, him being somewhere right up near the top. I did have him a tad lower. I put him just under Marciano at four. Gotcha. But honestly, like... I think we're going to agree on number one. And then beyond that, the sort of two, three, four, five, six, I think you could make a case for just about any order for these remaining guys. Yeah. And my number one, I assume is probably yours, is Willie Pep. Yeah. Um, Will of the Wisp, born in Middletown, Connecticut in 1922. One of the finest, perhaps the finest exponent of uh, defensive boxing in history. His record at the end of his career stood at 229, 11 and 1. Wow. Which is all the more remarkable. In that you could say that his career was essentially divided in two. He was 109, 1 and 1 when he somehow survived a plane crash that killed the co pilot and two other passengers. And yet he was back in the ring in July 1947, just six months later, and promptly went 120 and 10 in the back half of his career. He was just 20 years old when he first won the featherweight title. In 1944 alone, he went 16 and 0. He started his career 62 and 0 before suffering his first pro loss. And his defensive acumen was such that it has been stated he once won a round against Jackie Graves in 1946 without throwing a punch. That almost certainly isn't true. The right. creative imagination of Burt Sugar is frequently cited as being the origin of this story. But what isn't in doubt is that Pep was one of the greatest boxers of all time, and I think probably quite clearly the number one all-time New England pugilist. I can argue with none of that. He is pretty clearly the, the number one here. Those numbers are just remarkable. And uh, I guess it is partially my high regard for Willie Pep that led to mm -hmm. me having a certain fighter who must be your number yep. six all the way up at number two. Would you like to reveal who your number six is? Yeah, my very, very strong number six, who, had I not really personally wanted to include Sullivan and Langston <laughs> here, would have been high on the list, was the guy that Willie Pep could not figure out, Sandy Sadler. Yeah. Um, <laughs> absolutely terrific, by the way, uh, in his own right. Um, if you had him up there at number two, I would have absolutely no problem with it. Yeah. I felt guilty about leaving him off. Um, and that's when I realized that actually the the quality of the history of new england boxing was higher than i'd realized at first <laughs> yeah. and you gave me the, the challenge is when i felt bad about not having sandy sadler in the top five um other strong honorable mentions uh former middleweight champ Paul pender mm -hmm. um vinnie pazienza um mickey ward of course uh marlon starling who i must admit i didn't right. realize was from new england until i sat down to do this connecticut uh, um, is that right connecticut yeah, yeah okay yeah, absolutely uh you could put uh, chad dawson on here he had a pretty yeah. decent career although it did not turn out to be quite as great as i think a lot of us thought it might be 
Um, and then there's any number of solid fighters, um, historically and more recent, who you could put in there. Um, you could mention John Ruiz if you wanted. Uh, you could mention Demetrius <laughs> Andrade if you, you mentioned, wanted. But... Mentioning John Ruiz and Demetrius Sandrade, you're making me sad all over. That's like worse than <laughs> mentioning that Marvin Hagler is dead. <laughs> exactly. But there, uh, yeah, there's actually a much uh, higher number. None from Vermont. But still, that's <laughs> Oh, well. Hey, which means you could be the greatest from Vermont. Oof. You still got a shot. Sad. That would be sad. <laughs> uh, the only name that you didn't mention that I, I don't, I don't think you mentioned, uh, Tony DeMarco would be another oh, honorable mention uh, yes. worth including. But I, I'm glad you dropped Mickey Ward's name in there. He doesn't really belong anywhere close to the top five, but I like to hear his yeah. name drop just the same. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So, all right. That was a great. That was a great uh, challenge. I enjoyed that. Good. Um, that will do it for this week's episode of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney. Uh, don't forget. Benavides versus Plant is on Showtime pay-per-view this Saturday, starting at 9 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Pacific. And don't forget, again, to find uh, the all-access uh, Benavides versus Plant that is available on Showtime streaming and digital platforms. We will be back next week to recap that card and to preview Anthony Joshua's comeback against Jermaine Franklin. Until then, thank you for listening. Be safe, be kind, and be well. <laughs> <laughs>